When information about candidates persuades voters. This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. As voters are inundated with campaign advertising and news coverage of varying emphasis and quality, can they learn key information through all of the noise? Or does partisanship trump all, meaning voters can't make other distinctions based on the candidates' qualities and positions? Despite the obstacles, voters do learn from campaign messaging and are willing to shift their votes in response to what they learn. This week, I talk with Joshua Kalla of Yale University about his new American Journal of Political Science article with David Brockman, When and Why Are Campaigns' Persuasive Effects Small? Testing hundreds of messages on thousands of voters in the 2020 presidential election, they find that voters can be persuaded, especially with specific information about Joe Biden. I also talked to Kevin DeLuca of Harvard University about his new paper, Newspaper Endorsements, Candidate Quality, and Election Outcomes in the United States. He finds that more high-quality candidates, like those endorsed by newspapers, are still winning at high rates and getting more votes. But we don't see it because of mostly uncompetitive elections. This week, we're going to listen to each conversation in turn, starting with Cal's description of what they found. At a higher level, what we were hoping to do is to understand why is it that sometimes persuasion works to persuade voters in partisan elections in American politics, but other times it does not. So David Brockman and I have a 2018 paper where we find, generally speaking, there are minimal effects of persuasion, these types of partisan general elections, with two exceptions. One is that in nonpartisan races, we see larger effects than in partisan races. And the other exception is that early in a campaign cycle, we tend to see partisan effects or persuasive effects, but that these persuasive effects decay closer to election day and can't be replicated closer to election day, even if you use the same exact uh, persuasive messaging, the same exact type of outreach. So in this paper, what we're trying to do is to unpack those two observations, those two puzzles to see why is it that sometimes you see these persuasive effects, but other times you don't. And the, the kinds of context that you see them in seems fairly consistent. So what we're trying to do is to distinguish between one explanation that we offer in that paper and that other scholars have offered as well, which we refer to as partisan intoxication, which is just that voters in partisan elections resist information contrary to their partisan loyalties, and they're not motivated to form accurate beliefs about candidates because of their partisan loyalties. And that as you get closer to election day, people's partisan loyalties get more and more activated. So you see an increase in this partisan intoxication. So that's one theory that we're trying to distinguish from Another, which is just a a pure informational account, which is that voters have some set of priors about candidates. They know some set of facts about candidates. And as you get closer to an election, they know more and more about those candidates. So any marginal piece of information is going to diminish. It's going to be swamped by people's pre-existing priors. So both of those are are explanations that, that fit the pattern of data that we see in that 2018 paper. But we're trying to distinguish between those. So specifically what we do in in this study is we look at the 2020 presidential election and we conduct survey experiments uh, with close to 100,000 people and we randomly assign them to either receive pro or anti Trump and or Biden messaging. So there are four conditions where they can get pro Biden messaging, pro Trump messaging, anti Biden messaging or anti Trump messaging or a control condition with no messaging. And what we know from from our survey data and other survey data is just that voters 
going into the 2020 election knew less about Joe Biden than they did about Donald Trump. Uh, so this is a, a nice case where we can vary the priors that people have coming into to the study. Um, and we can also vary the informational content of these messages to try to distinguish between the, the person intoxication and the informational accounts. And broadly, what we find is that persuasive messages um, are much more persuasive about Biden as opposed to Trump. We find that there is partisan defection that's taking place. So Republicans exposed to pro-Biden messages move towards Biden. Uh, it's not only some sort of like coming home to your partisan base effect. And we also find that messages with more informational content, messages that are more specific, tend to be more persuasive. So putting together these, these patterns of, of findings, we argue that there is at least some place for this informational effect in American politics. We're not saying that it's everything. It's not the only explanation for, for persuasion in American politics, but it's it's definitely occurring and, and it's something that future research should continue to grapple with. So give us a sense of what the, the I guess, the size of those effects and just sort of the the, the indicators that you're using to, to find effects of those messaging um, experiments. What, you know, what, what does, does the average message uh, move voters and, and on what? Yeah, so the, the main thing that we're looking at is vote margin. So we ask a, a question to the effect of, if the election were held today, would you vote for Democrat Joe Biden or Republican Donald Trump? And we're looking to see how each of those messages, the, the pro-Trump, pro-Biden, anti-Trump, anti-Biden messages, move respondents on that vote margin question relative to a control group. And what we're seeing is that the the Biden messages, both the pro and the anti, move voters by about four points compared to the uh, Trump messages that move voters by a, a much smaller like one and a half points on that that vote margin question. Um, I don't think the the magnitude of effects are are necessarily meaningful because I think translating from that survey context to to real world effects, um, there's probably some diminishment, some sort of uh, adjustment that needs to take place there. But the kind of the relative magnitude of the effects is what I think is important. Where we're finding that both positive and negative Biden messaging moves voters more than positive and negative Trump messaging. So you uh, found that specific information was more influential and that Biden information was more uh, influential. Um, but this was, you know, one presidential election. Um, how how do you think that generalizes across uh, different offices and candidates? Maybe on the one hand, this should be kind of the least likely place to, to find uh, effects compared to the average U.S. election. Um, but yeah, obviously, there's lots of other differences between Biden and Trump and other candidates. Yeah, I think I think it's a. A great question is probably the question. Um, in the 2020 election, voters just knew much more about Donald Trump coming into it than about Joe Biden. So even though Joe Biden had been vice president for eight years under Barack Obama, he was still relatively unknown to many, many voters in the American electorate relative to Trump coming into the 2020 election, who had been in the media day in and day out for four years as president. So it's a, a nice context to, to test this idea of uh, differential priors or, or differential information about candidates. Um, and yes, it's it's only one election. Trump and Biden are, are two unique characters. So I think future work would be wise to continue investigating this in, in other elections, other offices, other countries to see whether or not these patterns of results hold up. Um, one thing that's unique about our study is it's being done with real world candidates. Um, 
it's often hard to find these types of, of settings with real world candidates. But I think to, to do this well, you, you want to focus on uh, real world candidates where respondents in a survey have actual priors about those candidates, where there is meaningful information about those candidates rather than purely hypothetical work. And how about about the specific versus general um, uh, finding? Obviously, this was a well. You, you, we. I don't think we've said you. You attributed uh, the the statements to the supporters of the opposing party, um, and so that might be a particular kind of situation where people might expect more more specifics. How, how do you think you'd? Uh, how do you think that finding would apply more broadly to what campaigns are doing? Yeah. So one thing that motivated. This study was the observation leading into the 2020 election that a lot of the Democratic messaging tended to be anti-Trump and it tended to be very vague anti-Trump messaging. Um, talk about how Donald Trump might be bad for democracy without saying how he is bad for democracy. What is he doing to, to violate a democratic norm? Um, so it was, just, it was an interesting observation about the real world that there was a, a big focus on, on this type of fairly vague um, attacks on, on Donald Trump. So we wanted to see whether or not those vague attacks were similarly effective as, as a more specific informational attack. And we found both in the, the Trump case, but even more strongly in the Biden case, that um, specific information was more persuasive than, than vague information. Um, which is very consistent with an informational account of voter persuasion. So give us uh, some more concrete examples of these messages that worked um, on uh, Biden, uh, either to increase or decrease uh, support, and maybe anything that, that might be sort of next steps to differentiate beyond just specific general that, that might have stuck out among uh, the most effective messages. Yeah, so the top three most persuasive pro-Biden messaging talked about COVID-19, his record on bipartisanship and his personal background. But the, the most persuasive message was, the coronavirus pandemic is ravaging America. Joe Biden has defended our country from dangerous viruses in the past. When he was vice president, he acted quickly to contain the Ebola virus and screen travelers from infected countries who are trying to enter America. This made sure the Ebola virus never spread in America like coronavirus has. This year, Joe Biden has also proposed fast action against coronavirus. He joined our national security leaders in calling for President Trump to use his authority as commander in chief to start manufacturing medical supplies for doctors and nurses. Biden has also said that we need to seek out the recommendations of public health experts and allow them to speak honestly to the nation about the threat we face. And the second one was Joe Biden has a strong record of being able to work successfully with both Republicans and Democrats. As vice president, he helped pass banking reforms, criminal justice reforms, and a weapons treaty with Russia, all of which passed with Republican votes. As president, he would have the skills and relationships to work with leaders of both parties and move America past divisive partisan politics. And the third most effective was, Joe Biden knows what it's like for working class Americans because he was born and raised in a working class American family. His family struggled when he was a child and for several years they had to live with their grandparents. Growing up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, his father had a hard time finding work as factories closed and coal mines shuttered. His family eventually moved to Delaware for new opportunities where Biden now lives. He ran for U.S. Senate for the first time to expand access to affordable health care to improve the lives of working class families like his. He understands what it's like for hardworking Americans because that's who he is and promises to advocate for them every day. So rereading these and, and reflecting on these in advance of this interview, I think what stood out to me is all of these focus on Biden's background and experience. Um, trying to paint a picture of him as, I think, a, 
a high quality candidate who has dealt with serious issues in the past and has the experience to deal with them again in the future. And as someone who values and, and cares about bipartisanship. Um, so I think, I think continuing to investigate the, the role of, I think, bipartisanship and moderation um, and just candidate quality more broadly, I think would be a, an interesting next step to see if there's specific type of, of messaging, specific type of arguments or appeals um, that may be more persuasive than others. But to clarify that there were also negative messages that were quite effective as well against Biden, right? And they took yes, there were. Form. Okay, I just I did you not pull out no, 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 no. <laughs> um, so, but there doesn't seem to be any. It doesn't seem to be about necessarily the top what the top issue is or anything along those lines. It just seems to be about the credibility of the message. Is that? Yeah, I mean, at the time, obviously, COVID nineteen was a, a highly salient issue. Um, but bipartisanship, not necessarily a, a salient issue. I think it's a, a thing many Americans say in survey data that they value, but it's not one of those most important issues of the day that would show up in a, a Gallup-type survey. And same with Biden's background as growing up in, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, that that's like a, a pure candidate valence, candidate quality uh, type appeal that, that really has minimal informational information about his policies, but tells you about who he is and what he values. So you also uh, found uh, effects among uh, Republicans uh, that you say are contrary to kind of a partisan story. Um, but uh, we, uh, of course, there, there might be a specific context to um, Republicans who had concerns about Donald Trump and might be willing to, to consider uh, uh, Joe Biden. Were there any other patterns uh, as to who was influenced and what it might tell you? Uh, about how this would uh, translate into the real world. Yeah, so one of the the predictions of like a, a partisan intoxication type argument would be that if you're making a pro-democratic appeal, that should mainly just move maybe independents or, or Democrats to return home to the, the party base. Um, it probably shouldn't move Republicans to, to cross party bases. Uh, that would be contrary to, to someone's partisan affiliation. So I think it's it's quite meaningful for our informational argument that we find that this pro-Biden appeal is able to move Republicans to, to vote for Joe Biden rather than to vote for Donald Trump. Now, the 2020 election is, is somewhat unique because there are large numbers of anti-Trump Republicans. Um, but one thing we did find in further heterogeneity tests is that this pattern of finding holds across the, the strength of partisan identity. So if we look at weak Republicans or lean Republicans compared to strong Republicans, we find fairly consistent effects of where that movement is coming from. So it's it's not just the, the weak or lean Republicans who might be the Republicans more likely to be anti-Trump where we, we find this effect. We find it across the, the strength of party affiliation. And is there an implication about the effect of partisanship as well? That is that uh, if uh, information can move even uh, counterpartisans, maybe some of what looks like a partisan effect is actually kind of an accumulated uh, information uh, effect that, that voters have rather than kind of just a, a social identity. What do you think? Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I think um, partisanship is a very important informational cue. So knowing that Joe Biden is a Democrat and knowing that Donald Trump is a Republican tells you a lot about those two candidates. Um, so I think 
party affiliation, party identification certainly makes its way into an informational argument in the sense that it's just a, it's a cue, it's a heuristic. And as the parties become more homogenized, um, both within Congress and in a, a kind of across levels as, as American politics becomes more nationalized um, among candidates, among political elites, I think that the informational content of that partisan cue probably becomes more valuable for, for voters across the board. So I feel like if uh, Josh Callow was a reviewer of this paper rather than an author, um, you would ask about uh, the the sort of, well, you're interested in advertising and media communications, but what you've done is uh, put something on a survey uh, and then immediately ask someone who they're going to vote for. Um, how much is that really going to, to translate into an advertising effect or a media effect that matters on, on election day? Uh, what do you think? Would you expect these to last or, or appear uh, in, a, in, in the world? And what kind of kind of message volume or environment would be required uh, for, for this kind of messaging to have an effect on actual voting? Yeah, so I wouldn't literally interpret the, the point estimates in this paper as what we would expect to to occur in the real world. Um, I think what's interesting is that we we find this pattern of effects where um, some persuasive appeals are larger than others. Um, so the, there is this relative difference across candidates and across specific versus vague informational appeals. So I think that that relative difference in this very artificial survey experimental context. Um, I think is is important learning from a, a political science, from a social science perspective. Um, it's not that these survey experiments are just able to move everyone across the board, um, where if you just teach someone a fact and ask them 10 seconds later how they plan on voting, we're not just seeing these massive effects from from all informational appeals, from from all candidates. Um, if we saw that, then maybe I'd be skeptical. But we we do see these these relative differences that are nicely predicted by this informational account of, of persuasion. Um, and then second, David and I are running field experiments that are trying to look at this informational argument where we're trying to provide um, information about candidates, specifically about um, candidates' policy positions to see how very neutral uh, information changes how people vote in congressional elections. So we don't have any findings we can share yet, but um, hopefully come springtime, we'll, we'll have a working paper. And so far, things look fairly consistent with what we're finding in this paper. What about going back to your previous work? Has this caused you to, I mean, you, you, you did a lot of uh, communication messages via direct voter contact um, and advertising in the past. Um, so did it, did it cause you to say, you, you know, the messages weren't right before, or do you still believe those, uh, those findings? Um, and do you think sort of everything would just go down in the real world? Yeah, so one thing, I mean, when we wrote that paper in, in 2018 on, on the minimal persuasive effects, um, one thing we, we wrote about in that paper, and especially when political practitioners would, would ask us about this, is it's totally possible that the, the persuasive appeals that campaigns are making are, are not the best appeals out there. Um, and I think there's, there's a really nice parallel to the voter turnout literature. So if you look at Don Green and Alan Gerber's first experiment from 1998 in New Haven on uh, voter turnout mail, they found mail had essentially no effect on, on voter turnout. Um, but it was only after they incorporated social pressure and, and other findings from social psychology and behavioral economics that they started to find that 
mail is an incredibly effective and, and cost-effective way to increase voter turnout. So I think if you were to say in 2000, when they published their paper, mail is totally ineffective, never run mail, don't do, do mail anymore, you would have missed this whole universe of, of untested um, messaging, untested tactics that ended up being quite effective. So I think that's what we, we said back in 2018. And, and that's sort of what I, I continue to believe today, that there are certainly untested arguments, untested informational appeals, untested types of persuasion that campaigns could try and could see if if they are effective or not. Um, I think it's hard. I think persuasion remains difficult in American politics because partisan affiliation, partisan identity is just this really strong informational cue. Um, but I think it's it's worth testing and it's something David and I are are still working on and we'll have more to share soon. So although we have um, limited evidence of, of persuasion effects, we do have um, uh, evidence that uh, candidate uh, characteristics do seem to, to matter, uh, especially candidate quality and to some extent moderation. Uh, and um, presumably those have to be communicated to voters uh, somehow, and they might be tied to this uh, kind of research on, on what uh, what information can be communicated to voters. Obviously, you also did research on moderation uh, effects in uh, the 2020 election and comparing the Democratic primary candidates. Um, so I guess tie those together for me and, and tell me how you think, if you think, um, part of what the, the effects of moderate, moderate candidates that you found or candidate quality that others have found might be related uh, to actually communicating that information. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think... Voters in surveys tend to tell us that they favor high quality candidates and they tend to favor moderate candidates, whatever moderation might mean. And it's it's a fraught term, but whether that means it's ideologically moderate or holding popular policy positions, whatever it means, um, voters tend to value candidates with with experience who are high quality and they tend to value candidates who have some type of moderation. Um, but voters don't necessarily know that information about any given candidate A who is running in election I. So I think there there's an important role for the candidate to teach voters that information about how they are high quality or, or how they are moderate or in whatever dimension they, they might be moderate. Um, and I think there's an important role for candidates to work with the media to, to try to get that narrative out there and to do direct uh, persuasion, direct outreach, like what we're looking at more in, in this paper. But I think both are, are important mechanisms because candidates candidates might be the most high quality, the most moderate, the, the perfect candidate, but unless they teach that information to voters in, in some way, unless voters learn that information, voters aren't going to be able to act on it. Um, I, think, I think it's very consistent with kind of what Lynn Vavrick writes about in her book and what Andy Gelman and Gary King write about in, in their research about how a big function of campaigns is in taking this information that's out there in the world and bringing that to voters so that voters have that information to, to use come election day. So we're seeing a rise of uh, amateur candidates without uh, previous political experience, uh, especially on the Republican side, and trying to apply your work to 2022. Um, I noticed that there was there, there are three Senate candidates who are uh, known for football, uh, a best-selling book, uh, and TV. Um, so their voters may know something about them, but it's not really a political um, set of characteristics. So how, how do you think that would apply? Those sound like candidates where you know, persuasion could, could matter a lot. Um, uh, but, 
but voters might have a, a pre-existing opinion, uh, you know, from something like TV that that they might have had with Trump as well. So, what do you think? Yeah, I, I haven't been following the races too closely. I I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I have a, a special affinity for for the Pennsylvania Senate race. And I, I think it is it's interesting that the Fetterman campaign has focused a lot of their effort on teaching voters one fact, which is that Dr. Oz does not live in Pennsylvania. Um, that seems to be their thesis of of the race is that if we can teach voters that, we will be able to win. And I think what will be interesting to see, and I just don't know if there's polling data on this, but as more and more Pennsylvanians get exposed to that argument, um, you would expect that the marginal effect of continuing to talk about that argument should diminish because you're no longer teaching voters new information. And you would expect at a certain point for the Fetterman campaign to pivot to some other type of argument to focus some other factor about Oz or pro-Fetterman beyond the fact that Oz does not live in Pennsylvania. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as we get closer to election day and as that fact might become more and more saturated within the electorate. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think these candidates do need to give an affirmative case for for why they are running and why they're qualified because voters just know less about them. So I think we would expect also to see a lot of room for pro new candidate uh, persuasion in these types of races. I don't I'm not sure what data is out there, um, but I, I think these are interesting races to look at because you have candidates who voters just know very little about. So I, I, if I'm not mistaken, you don't find an overall kind of positivity versus negativity effect, which is kind of an, uh, an old um, question, I guess, as to, as to what campaigns should do. But it seems to me that you would, your practical advice this year would be that uh, often both campaigns should be talking about the same candidate, uh, even if that's positive for one uh, side and, and negative for the other. So, for example, in Georgia, Herschel Walker is unknown politically. And so, you know, both the Republican and Democratic campaigns should be uh, focused on, on trying to provide information about the, the one candidate. So is that the true advice? And if so, why, why don't we always seem to see candidates following it? That is uh, the 2020 campaign that you're uh, uh a study was about, it seems like both candidates were actually talking more about Trump. So one thing that, one observation, and I don't want to claim a causal effect of our paper, but when we released a working draft of our paper in, in June 2020, we did actually notice that um, the Democratic side started to do more pro-Biden argumentation um, after our paper came out than, than they had before. So so there was a, a bit of a shift um, on, on the Democratic side to maybe not exclusively anti-Trump argument to less anti-Trump argumentation and, and more pro-Biden argumentation. Um, so that that was an interesting thing to, to observe at the time. Um, and then with the, the Georgia Senate race, I mean, I'm not sure how much voters know about Warnock, um, given he's only been in the Senate for two years and he hadn't held public office before then, I believe. Uh, so he he's still a relative newcomer. Um, but Relatively speaking, yes, I assume voters know much, much more about Warnock than they do about Herschel Walker. So given the just the, those relative comparisons, yeah, I think you would expect to see more anti-Walker argument from the Democratic side and more pro-Walker argument from 
the Republican side and very little focusing on uh, Raphael Warnock. Um, I'm not sure if that's the case in Georgia. I just haven't been been following what's happening there. Um, I think I think part of the challenge is in 2020, a lot of Democrats were lukewarm about Biden. So I think there was a, a hesitancy to be so strongly pro-Biden. And I think a lot of candidate campaigns like talking about themselves. Uh, so I think you probably do have a, a bias from campaigns themselves to, to run more pro-campaign or pro-candidate messaging than anti-opponent messaging, even if our paper might argue they, they should be doing that. Can information lead voters to select high-quality candidates? Kevin DeLuca says yes, and he began by explaining his project. Well, I ask, how much does candidate quality matter for election outcomes? I also examine whether the effects of quality have declined over time, given the rise of uh, political polarization in recent times. Um, to do this, I use newspaper endorsements as a measure of differences in candidate quality. I have a large set of endorsements and I estimate the quality differences for thousands of elections between 1950 and 2020. I find that on average, a one standard deviation increase in relative candidate quality will increase that candidate's vote shares by about four percentage points. So that kind of gives you like a first pass, like estimate of the size of the effect here. So like a one standard deviation, four point effect. Um, I also show that contrary to kind of this popular belief um, about the effect of polarization on quality, the effect of quality on vote shares does not decrease over this period. If anything, it, it, it increases a little bit. Um, however, I also show that over this same time period, the number of competitive elections is declining. And specifically the number of elections where this candidate quality effect could affect the final outcome that has declined. And so I think this popular perception that quality doesn't matter anymore, I think that's sort of right in the sense that it doesn't determine the final outcome in a lot of elections. But the nuance here is that voters themselves still care about quality. It doesn't seem to be an effect of the voters not voting for high quality candidates. It's more of like a systemic explanation. So let's make it more concrete with some specific examples. So, you know, people talk about like Trump versus Clinton as being an inexperienced candidate and a non, um, but obviously you have all these newspaper endorsements to get um, a, a sort of a more precise estimate. So talk, talk through some examples that we might have heard of and what your measure shows uh, versus others. Yeah, well, I, I do. I can talk about the Trump and Clinton um, race. That's one, I think, example that people want to hear about. Um, so Trump hardly got any newspaper endorsements. He was the worst candidate, um, since George McGovern in 1972, at least according to my measure. Um, I do have him at a 0.63 standard deviation quality disadvantage, um, which predicts that he would run about 2.6 points behind whatever the national environment is that year. Um, in 2016, I have here that Republicans won 50.5% of the two-party vote share in the House, while Trump won 48.9% of the popular vote, um, which is a 1.6 point difference. So actually the, the model in this case kind of overestimates how bad Trump is. And I think this is partly due to, we can talk about this in a little bit, but 
the newspapers themselves have, I think, a little bit of a pro kind of establishment bias. And Trump was very anti-establishment, anti-press in particular. Um, and I think they, um, you know, they couldn't bear to endorse him, even if they're very conservative. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a trick answer, but anything within this one standard deviation effect, which is four points, I think it's fair to say that quality could potentially affect that, that outcome. Um, one benchmark that I like to use in my head is that, uh, the average quality difference of people who win their elections is actually equivalent to a 1.6% percentage point boost in their vote shares. Um, so one way to think of it is like anything less than 1.6% is like very easily flipped by candidate quality differences. Um, I think a good and important example is the GA, uh, the Georgia Senate races, sorry, in 2020 um, and the runoffs in 2021. For both Warnock and Ossoff to win in essentially a 50-50 environment, um, that kind of indicates to me that candidate quality like tipped the scales here. Um, in particular, this is also a case where the previous measures of, of candidate quality, like incumbency and previous experience, would have done really bad explaining the result because um, you know both Warnock and Ossoff were facing incumbents. Um, neither of them had previous experience, and yet it looks like candidate quality is what determined the final election outcome. So I think that's a good example of where this newspaper measure is kind of better than the previous measures. So talk through that a little bit more. So you, you, I know we usually use just have you previously held an elected office, maybe which office um, at, at the most. Um, so your measures are related to those measures, I think. But uh, what else are they they capturing and, and how different are they? Right. So, you know, in, in general, I'd say the measure, the newspaper based measure tells a pretty similar story, but it's not exactly the same as using these like previous measures. So one thing I do is I. I do a sort of simple text analysis where I just count the most common words used in newspaper endorsement articles. And I find that the top two things are experience and issues. So kind of in my mind, that kind of validates this model that I have in the back of my head, which is like newspapers consider the issues. This is like the partisan dimension of the election, like what's at stake in terms of policy. But they also consider experience, which is um, an indicator of candidate quality. There are other um, there are other interesting words I think that show up. Things like leadership, um, served is also a word that comes up a lot in record, like talking about the record of each candidate. Um, and these are things that are even harder to get like objective measures of. Like there's no objective measure of leadership or of like serving your constituency well. Um, but newspapers, it's it's indicated that they do consider these these factors and that weighs into their endorsement. And so that's a little bit more of a sophisticated, um, nuanced measure of quality, whereas these like binary kind of indicator variables don't won't be able to catch those um, those nuances. 
So um, help us understand how you could get an increasing effective candidate quality when we have elections that are just overwhelmingly partisan now and, and nationalized and we get just very similar differences, uh, very, very similar uh, partisan results across different offices. Um, how, how can we be seeing uh, an increasing candidate quality effect? Uh, what's the logic there? Well, the logic um, is that, I mean, I, I hypothesize in my paper, I talk about this a little bit, that it's totally possible that while most of the electorate and while elites are polarizing, while the parties are polarizing, there's still a group of moderate or cross-pressured voters, like you like policy A of the Democrats, but policy B of the Republicans, where candidate quality will ultimately kind of flip your vote. Um, and that can be true even as polarization is increasing. So it's not necessarily like that polarization, the effects of polarization that everyone else finds are wrong. It's just that the people who vote based on quality, there still might be enough of them to find for you to find this kind of four point effect. Um, you know, at the same time, I think this decrease in the number of competitive elections, um, you might call that part of the effects of polarization, but it's more of like a geographic sorting story where you know, states just aren't as competitive as they used to be. Um, there's a redistricting angle here where, uh, you know, politicians don't like to draw competitive districts. And so that will also reduce the number of elections where quality might actually affect the final outcome. Um, but all that can be true, even while these kind of moderate or cross-pressured voters um, are still responding to candidate quality and voting more for the higher quality candidates. And how does this uh, size compare to incumbency? And is incumbency a signal of, of candidate quality? Yeah, so incumbency is a signal of candidate quality. I find that in 80 to 85% of cases, the incumbent is the higher quality candidate. So it's not, again, it's not like all the previous work on incumbency or previous experience also, I find you know that they're higher quality. It's not like all that work is wrong. It's just that the measure of like incumbency, that can't tell you whether in these 15% of cases where the incumbency is the worst candidate, where the incumbent is the worst candidate, incumbency won't pick that up. It also won't tell you whether like an incumbent is like a really, really good incumbent or just like slightly better than their challenger. And so, you know, using incumbency as a proxy for quality, I mean, it is a proxy for quality but it just misses this kind of nuance and precision that the that the newspaper endorsements allow you to estimate. So you also acknowledge that uh, newspapers uh, don't just endorse on quality. Uh, one of the things they endorse is just the partisan or ideological spectrum. So uh, tell us about how you separated those two and, and what kind of a new measure of partisan bias of the newspapers that, that developed. Right. So I, in my model, I estimate the bias of the papers, too, since you have to control for the bias of the papers, because that tells you that reveals information about the kind of the magnitude of the quality differences. So the really basic idea is that higher quality candidates right, will get more endorsements. And if you see like a very Republican leaning paper endorse a Democrat, that's a that's a strong sign that Democrat is kind of much significantly higher quality than the Republican in that race. And that's kind of the logic of the model. Um, 
in terms like the, this is not really the focus of the paper, but I do find some interesting trends with the newspaper's um, bias. So over time, um, starting in like the 40s, 50s, into the 60s, local newspapers are heavily pro-Republican. They like are very likely to endorse Republican candidates. Um, this has been documented in, in some other papers as well, but I find the same trends here where they start off Republican in that era, and then by the 2000s, they're pretty neutral, maybe with a slight Democratic bias. So there's a big kind of shift in the local news environment, at least in terms of their sort of partisanship. Um, there's also an interesting kind of pro-incumbency bias, which rises and falls over time. So in the 50s, um, it's, it's sort of low, like they don't have a strong preference for incumbents. And that rises starting around the 70s. Um, and then it kind of stays constant over time where they have a much stronger uh, pro-incumbent bias. And I think um, my, 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 sorry, my data is a little noisy, but um, starting around 2008, 2010, there seems to be a decline in this pro-incumbent bias. And this mirrors the general trends like of incumbency on electoral performance over time. So I think that's interesting, like something I should look into more. Um, you know, across the sample, I can give some estimate of effect sizes here. So across the sample, being an incumbent makes you about 30 percentage points more likely to get endorsed. Having previous uh, and relevant experience also increases your probability of being endorsed by like the similar magnitude, um, as does having a longer like tenure of experience. Being in a scandal makes you much less likely to be endorsed. Um, not surprising, I think. <laughs> um, and I haven't, I haven't really looked at how these vary over time, but I think that just that, you know, the fact that newspapers are more and less likely to endorse based on these different factors that we already think are signals of candidate quality, that helps to back up this um, idea that like the newspapers that endorsements themselves are a signal of candidate quality. So I know you're uh, using the newspapers mostly uh, as a, an indicator of, of something that might be apparent outside of people actually reading the newspapers. But of course, we're talking at a time of huge decline in newspaper uh, subscriptions and in the role of, of newspapers in, um, in politics. So kind of tell us about what you uh, how you're how you're uh, thinking about the actual effect of newspapers themselves versus newspapers um, as just an indicator, uh, mm. and then if it's still going to be relevant uh, going forward. So I have some work in progress as the last part of my dissertation, which is looking at what kind of voters respond to newspapers and whether that can explain some of these candidate quality effects that we've seen, like whether newspapers are informing voters about quality and whether that is affecting their votes. Um, it could be the endorsements per se, or it could also be just like the general coverage of those papers circulating right among people. Um, and I have a couple of different ways to look at this. I do find that more moderate and independent voters seem to be responding to quality more, which is consistent with my paper and other work. Um, but you know, I can't rule out other effect, like other sources of information like campaigns um, or just other like news sources like TV news rather than uh, newspapers themselves or 
nowadays, like news spread through social media might also be affecting those um, things. And, and what about the trends, though? I mean, we have all this evidence that uh, people are differentiating less uh, in favor of their local incumbents because of uh, decline in, in local media. So that would seem to kind of cut against the story that, that people would learn more about their their individual candidates versus just voting along party nationalized. Yeah. Yeah. So it's possible that like as local news declines, people, especially in the kind of recent decade, there's been an even more stark decline. Um, I think it's possible that we would see smaller effects of quality. Um, maybe people just learn less about their incumbents. You know, I'm, I'm not totally convinced that that's true, though, necessarily, particularly if you think that this is explained by like a smaller group of kind of cross pressured voters that end up voting on quality because they're kind of at the end of the day kind of in the middle of the two parties um it's possible that they still learn about quality since it actually will affect their vote and then they vote that way um but it could be but you could see for example in aggregate surveys that people tend to know less about their local incumbents um and know less about the quality even though there's still an effect of quality on vote vote shares so uh, we are having some uh, important trends in uh, primaries that seem to be um, cutting against this. Uh, amateur candidates um, without previously held elected office are, are winning more often, kind of started in Republicans and moved to the Democrats. Um, so would you expect candidate quality effects to be declining in primaries uh, along with that? Um, and, and if so, why aren't parties selecting candidates uh, that would do better in the general election? Yeah, so, I mean, the previous work that I've read on this suggests that, um, at least historically, higher quality candidates did well in primaries, and, um, yeah, and that, you know, I don't have newspaper endorsements for primary elections, so I can't do the same sort of uh, model here. Um, And I don't have endorsements for the most kind of recent, I don't have enough endorsements for kind of the last decade to really estimate this. But, you know, I do think you're right. And I think people are right in general that particularly on the Republican side, maybe starting with the Tea Party movement, you have sort of these um, these candidates who are maybe not high quality, according to their resumes, um, are winning elections more. And I think there's a little bit of a disconnect between the Republican primary electorate and the general election electorate where they kind of care about other things like basically electing more ideological candidates, um, not really thinking about the general election strategy there. Um, And so I do think in terms of like, if I could estimate this with my quality measure, I would see that lower quality candidates would win um, in primaries more often nowadays. Now there, you know, there's a little bit of an anti, you know, anti-establishment streak in American politics. And I think in recent times, it's, you know, perhaps stronger than it had been. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I worry a little bit because it's not, you know, it's not that the newspapers necessarily are picking up the ideal kind of, it's not like they always make the right decision. So it could be that the electorate itself realizes, look, this guy doesn't have the right resume, but he has some other feature 
that we want to um, you know, we want to take a risk on him and give him a chance. And that might be totally rational. <clears throat> so I just, uh, you know, I would, I would hesitate to say that like the electorate is making like worse choices now, but at least in terms of like this quality measure that I find, um, Republicans, I think are having a little bit of a problem recruiting good candidates to run that are going to be good in the general election. Um, that may or may not be the right choice for them, but that's what I, would assume that I find. And uh, Mitch McConnell has uh, sort of famously in this election said that they're suffering from low quality candidates um, for the U.S. Senate um, races. Um, I know you're trying to estimate, you know, the bias of the newspapers. You probably have year effects. Um, so are you able to, to, to show when one party does have kind of an overall candidate quality advantage, say, across Senate elections or, or House elections? Are you able to kind of replicate the conventional wisdom that Republicans had a candidate quality um, disadvantage in like 2010 and 2012, maybe solved it in 2014 mm. and might be seeing it again. Yeah. So in theory, I, I, I could try to do that. I haven't done it exactly. Um, I mean, I do actually agree <clears throat> with Mitch McConnell on this point. Like in the, I, it's kind of a small part of the paper, but in the appendix, I kind of run this model separately for uh, different types of races. So for the U S Senate governor, other statewide races, U.S. House, et cetera. And I find that US, for U.S. Senate elections, that's one of the high, like quality has some of the biggest effects there, both in terms of vote shares and also like probability of winning on average. <clears throat> um, my guess is that like, it's because Senate races and other statewide races get a lot more attention than like U.S. House races. So um, it's really common for news, for local newspapers to endorse like for the governor, but they might not endorse in every house race. They might not ever even mention the state legislative races that are going on. And so people might just know more about quality in these like top of the ticket races. <clears throat> um, it could also be that like people care more about quality in different offices. So you maybe you care that your governor is like running the government well, um, but you don't really care if like your state legislator is just like one out of a hundred giving votes every now and then you don't really care if they're high quality or not. So it doesn't affect your decision as much. Um, as of this year, you know, the newspaper endorsements aren't, aren't out yet. So I don't have like a estimate of the quality of those candidates, but just given what I know, I'd say, yeah, it's like, it could be a big problem for the Republicans. Um, if you assume that in places like Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, that the partisanship or the expected vote is like close to 50 50. Um, and if you add on what looks like maybe a slight edge for Republicans nationally, um, though maybe that's going away a little bit, <laughs> then I think it's very likely that can't, these candidate quality differences, which are big in those races, um, could totally flip the seats. Like normally, I think Republicans shouldn't be worried that they would win all of those seats. <laughs> but I think given that, they kind of ended up nominating candidates that are worse than the Repu or that are worse than the Democratic candidates. Um, it, it's possible that they lose all those seats and lose control of the Senate because of it. So on the other side, um, I guess to defend maybe the, the partisan voters or the other <laughs> the other side here, I mean. It, 
are newspapers really right that like if they generally prefer Republicans to Democrats that they should you know not support Herschel Walker just because he's a you know bad candidate individually isn't the most important thing who controls the Senate and and therefore everybody's kind of hanging on to these details that don't matter as much as the key key detail of, of party and maybe the 80 90 percent of voters are right and the newspapers are wrong yeah I mean that's totally possible. And it could be, you know, it could depend, like you said, it could depend on, you know, is this a race where it's going to de- determine party control of like the chamber or like if it's like the presidential race, then there's a big value in having the same partisan kind of side uh, as your president, like if you care about policy. Um, <clears throat> so it's possible, you know, it's possible that the people who are flipping their votes are like, not just like not paying attention to policy and they just vote for like the charismatic guy who also happens to have experience right and so maybe you think it's not related to the actual like performance of the candidates once they get into office um you know i think newspapers given like having read a lot of these and seeing what they talk about i think they really are trying very hard to um you know, pick candidates who are going to do a good job in the office, particularly for, particularly for races like if it's like attorney general or something where um, it's less about like the policies that get implemented, but kind of being just being competent is really like important. You know, I think they're like they really key in on those things. And so even if, um, you know, even if you think that the moderate voters are like not paying attention and not like making the right like rational kind of calculus the fact that like they still seem to be voting for the higher quality candidates as long as you believe that newspapers are actually picking out higher quality people to govern then i mean that's like still a good um it's still good to have them around <laughs> um even if like yeah it doesn't fit these like more ideal models where they're like super sophisticated and like helping improve the quality of governance to just like voting on charisma or something. It's still correlated with what newspapers think is good governing, which is I think a good measure of a good prediction of how someone's going to perform in office. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, I recommend checking out these episodes. Can TV news keep politics local? How does the public move right when policy moves left? How record television advertising is shaping American elections? Policymakers follow informed expertise. And does nationalized media mean the death of local politics? Thanks to Joshua Calla and Kevin DeLuca for joining me. Please check out When and Why Are Campaigns Persuasive Effects Small? And Newspaper Endorsements, Candidate Quality, and Election Outcomes in the United States. And then listen in next time.